The Athletic. Welcome to the Athletic Women's Football Podcast. Coming up, swings and roundabouts in Milton Keynes, Lionesses sent to Coventry and FA Cup prize pot on the money. Hi, it's Lindsay Hooper here with former England captain Faye White, who's been on our TV screens all weekend. Hello, Faye. You ditched the makeup for this one? Yeah, you don't want to see me now. <laughs> We've all got our videos off. Well, some of us have. We've also got a tag team from The Athletic today. It's Charlotte Harper and tactics specialist Michael Cox. Hello to both of you. Charlotte, hi. Hello, Lindsay. Charlotte tells me she had honey on her porridge because of my recommendation today. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> uh, and Michael as well, who's uh, matching me in red, which is only for people that can see this podcast, which is none of you. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, please, yeah. we're matching today. <laughs> Yes. Well, we've got to start with some transfer news. I say transfer news. It's a transfer exclusive, which Charlotte, you bring hot off the press. You've got an update from Manchester United on a badger. What have you got to tell us? Yes. So we know that on a badger, her contract expires uh, this summer. And she is free to talk to uh, teams abroad as of January the 1st to sign a pre-contract agreement if she wishes. She has rejected Manchester United's latest uh, contract offer. They're yet to agree fresh terms. The likes of Arsenal, Barcelona, Chelsea, Lyon and PSG have all shown interest. Some Clubs have offered, you know, double the wages that Manchester United are offering uh, and a contract length which is more suitable to the players' wishes. So time will tell whether she will stay at Manchester United. Of course, Champions League is pivotal. Uh, the players um, said to be happy at Manchester, but, you know, it's about the footballing project as well. So watch that space for Honor Badier. But at the moment, Man United made an offer. Badger has rejected that latest offer. That's very interesting. It's also the amount of interest that you've listed there. And I'd read in an article that you'd written previously about how many clubs were vying for her attention. We could see a bidding war be, well, it sounds like it might have already began, but we might see it in full swing come summer. Yeah, there's there's huge interest. I mean, American and European clubs tried to buy her in the summer. That's my understanding. And so Manchester United were aware of the kind of proposals coming in. The thing is, is that she will leave on a free contract because her deal expires this summer. So it's not like Manchester United are going to gain a a transfer fee from it. She is a real fan's favourite as well. So I'm sure you've um, had a lot of ears prick up at the thought of Onabadja maybe going somewhere else. But that is the latest that we have for you. Um, Keep across Charlotte's articles. I'm sure she'll bring you more updates in between this and the next show that we do. Uh, Later on in this show as well, we're going to have for you uh, more detail on FA Cup prize money and the impact that that increase has had on teams like Cardiff City Ladies. We'll be speaking to their chair, Michelle Adams, MBE. Yeah, it's the first time we've ever made a profit um, on wow. the Epic Cup or, or in anything, you know. In, in the past, we were one of the top 12 teams in the UK before the WSL1 came in. Um, and then we were basically relegated without kicking the ball because we were a Welsh club playing in England. So it cost us an absolute fortune. But first, two games, two wins for England in the Arnold Clark Cup after they beat Career Republic 4-0 in Milton Keynes. They went and faced Italy in Coventry. James sends it in towards Daly again. Oh! At the double for Rachel Daly. Yes, two headers from Rachel Daly were enough to bag England the win, despite a goal from Italy's Sofia Cantore. Let's talk tactics on this one. So what have we seen from England over these two matches? And Michael, I'm going to come to you as an analysis expert, first of all. It clearly was experimental from Serena Wiegmann. It's hard to compare like for like. But what do you think that she's seen? I think one of the key things that was notable in both games was how quickly England were winning the ball high up the pitch and really pressing aggressively. I think that was the case against Korea, who didn't really get into England's half much. Italy tried to play a bit more football. 
but yeah, there were quite a few chances where, I mean, Daly was pressing really well. There was the midfield backing her up and just that quick turnover. I mean, England, you know, have been a good side since um, Serena Viegman came in, but I think they are evolving. I think they're becoming a bit more complete. And yeah, without the ball, there seems to be a real emphasis on on getting tight, pushing up, winning the ball quickly, and not really having to do much defending in their own half, to be honest. Faye, I, I mean, the high press, I know it's something that you're a big fan of. I heard you talking about this, but is it something that you now see as synonymous with Serena Wiegmann's style? Yeah, obviously, it's so much better to win the ball higher up and um, you catch the team out of shape when you do that. And yeah, I think in the last game, um, Rachel Daly is is very good at doing that. She you seen it in the WSL as well. I'm not saying um, Alessia Russo isn't, but it's just so intriguing that she's. It's great that Daly's had that opportunity to to show what she can do up front for England in the last few games that we've seen her in that position. And uh, I just I, I just know from a defender's point of view, you hate it when you know a forward is on it every moment chasing you. You you like to I love playing against a lazy defender uh, forward, you know, who just wanted the ball, the ball at her feet. When they didn't want to do the ugly side of the game, you kind of you knew you, you could relax, have those few more seconds on the ball and stuff like that. But you know, someone like Daly, she she just she does it in the left back position. She works hard for the team, but she's just, um, you know, great at just spotting it and almost encouraging to play the ball and then go and, you know, put that pressure on her. And she could have had a couple more goals, in my opinion. Really impressive headers as well. And I thought the second one in particular took took a lot of skill to be able to direct it into the corner. But was your takeaway for the number nine position that it is now directly between Daly and Russo? Well, yeah, those are the two obvious now, isn't it? Well, we haven't seen enough of Ebony Salmon, have we, really? No, no. And I think when she's come on late on in games, it's hard for her to to add that. I mean, I wouldn't rule out Beth England now that she's at Spurs um, and getting regular game time. We've seen, you know, look at Jordan Nobbs comes back into the squad because now she's playing regularly. Um, And I think that's a really positive note that if you're not playing regularly and you're going to be happy to sit on the bench, you won't get in this England team, no matter how good you are or... You know, but at the moment, because she hasn't been selected for the last few uh, Beth England, then yeah, you would you see that. And obviously, with Ellen retiring, you did almost look well. Who's now going to go up there? Obviously, Beth Mead, I think, can play as a nine because she traditionally, as a youngster, she she was an out and out goal scorer and she's learnt how to play on the wings brilliantly, as we've seen. But obviously, injured now, so she has to have other options and. Yeah, it's a space. I don't think it's definitely bang on for Ruth. So, yes, yeah, she did brilliantly coming on as a sub, but she's got to now prove against the top teams regularly, week in, week out, um, or when you play regularly for England, that you, you're going to be able to lead the line. Um, so, yeah, it's intriguing. But definitely, why would Rachel Daly not be there? She's up the top goal scorer of the, of the league this season. So, um, And I just like her all-round game. Charlotte, you've been writing about the stats to do with Daly, so you can spell it out for us. Should she be the the number one choice for that nine spot? Well, looking at her shot maps, so the location of where uh, she takes her chances, Daly is very central. So most all of her chances come within, if you imagine the goal and the penalty box, within that six-yard box. So she's, she's an out-and-out, like, she just sniffs out opportunities. She's a real genuine striker. You can see her with the headers. If you look at her XG, um, so expected goal. So that's the likelihood of a shot becoming a goal. And as you said, Linz, that second header was actually pretty difficult. It was about 10 yards out. And she managed to get you know enough precision and power on it to guide it into the, the bottom corner. And then if you just compare that well looking at her touches as a, a as a center forward she likes to drop deep link up play put the ball out wide she's actually on the ball quite a bit and passing out wide and then will venture into the box and she has that similar role for Aston Villa as well um so she's not going to be you know creating chances or assists she's the one dropping deep plays out wide then into the box and then um, it was interesting talking to Rachel Daly in the mix zone. Michael and I were there last night and she just said, you know, I'm not really bothered. I think you guys care about where I play more than I do, whether that's left back or centre forward. But we do care because it's so unusual to have such a versatile player that can play left back and centre forward. Like, 
as I said in my article, it's like comparing apples and oranges. So when looking at the stats, well, is she better at left back or is she better at number nine? You can't really compare because they're such different positions. But it is quite fun looking at her, the number of touches she has during the Euros where she started every game at left back. And then you see her as a number nine and, you know, she had two touches in the box in the Euros compared to just 10 for one game against Italy. So, yeah, I had a lot of fun looking at that. I'm sure Michael's got an opinion on this as well. Does some of it come down to options that Serena Wiegmann has in both of those areas for Daly? Is it less likely that she'll be moved away from that left-back role because the other options aren't there? Yeah, that's the fun thing. I thought Charlotte's article spelled it out really, really well. And I must say from the two games, I think Daly impressed more than more than Russo. I actually thought Russo had quite a good game against Korea, but Daly, just the whole game revolved around her in an aerial threat. But yeah, obviously, if you're not playing her at left back, then it means, I guess, Alex Greenwood is going to play that left back role, which I think might help considering at times Daly struggled against Spain and Germany in the second half of the Euros just defensively. But then you're only one injury away from a bit of a question mark because, mm. I mean, even if Kira Walsh isn't available, we know that Serena Wiegmann wants to play Williamson in that role. So then you're looking for another centre-back. Does Greenwood then come inside? That's quite, you know, it's quite a big knock-on. Are you then tempted to put Daly back at left-back? I mean, there's, there's so many movable parts in the England team, which I think is, I mean, it's, it's very fun for us to chat about and it's good for Serena Wiegmann that she's got so many options. But yeah, at this point, don't really know how it will uh, will pan out. I'm going to get a reaction from Faye White to Leah Williamson in that midfield role, which you just brought up, because I imagine, Faye, that you're a staunch supporter of her remaining as a, a centre-back. Yeah, of course, because it just shores up that central partnership. But equally, with Leah's passing range and her ability, I think against the lesser nations, you you can put her in, in midfield, and I think she would be able to do that job as well but yeah I just think it's when you're playing the top top you know in top competitions then I think why would you change something that's works so brilliantly obviously during the Euros and I mean I talk about Alex Greenwood I I prefer at left back as opposed to centre half um, on the left side because I just think sometimes against the top striker she gets a bit exposed um, and just gets caught wrong side sometimes but at left back you would argue you know, for me, she's slightly better okay. there. Um, I think sometimes she dwells on the ball um, because she is such a good ball player as well. But yeah, I think with it's it's about it, it's always and then obviously if it was or you would put daily maybe left back. But like you say, if you get an injury to Russo, would you need her there? So it is all related. But at the end of the day, she will have to pick what is my best players for those best positions. She, I heard her do an interview. I think it was before this last game, and she said we want exceptional players in each position. And then obviously hope that they can, if something comes up in, in a tournament, like injuries or niggles and or bands or whatever, then, you know, you are able to rejig. So for me, yeah, Leah is centre-half, but she is has the ability to play. But if you were playing in the final, would you put her there? Probably not. You wouldn't want to. You'd want to have her at the, at the back, wouldn't you? We knew that the Arnold Clark Cup would be about experimenting for Serena Wiegmann. And Leah Williamson afterwards spoke to you, Charlotte. This is what she had to say about switching positions. So now, like, how do you feel about it? It was your best position at the back, would you still say? I think it's where I play week in, week out. So I think it'd be harsh to expect myself to be ready and uh, as good as I could maybe be at the back as being in the middle. But... Um, I don't know really. I'm like I say. I'm when I was younger. I really used to fight against and moving me about, and it's probably one of my biggest strengths and led me to play so many positions. So I actually had that conversation with my Marley the other day about how much I used to throw my toys out the pram when she used to put me in different positions, and now look at me. It's working in my favour because it's it's I don't know being able to show up for the team. We will come on to more England players in just a moment. But Michael, I want to ask you about Italy. It's clearly been a transitional time for the team. Yeah, it seemed to me like they rested most of their first teamers for the first game in in preparation for giving this one a really good go. I thought compared to how they played at the Euros, they were a bit more positive. I thought they wanted to play out from the back. Didn't always go particularly well because of England's pressing. I think the interesting thing for them is the, the role of Manuela Giuliano, who for her club side Roma has has dropped back. She started out as a number 10, is now playing a, a kind of deep-lying role in front of the defence. But for Italy, she returned to that kind of number 10 role just behind the striker. And 
I just didn't think it suited her that well. I think her game was about getting the ball to feet and spraying good passes in behind the defence. And I think when she's so high up, she's just not really seeing the ball very much, especially when England are pressing and just denying opportunities to pass the ball into her. So yeah, they're a, a work in progress. They've got some some good players going forward. But yeah, I think they, they struggled to really impose themselves on the game. To be honest, aside from a, a couple of attacks down the flank, there's one in the first half and obviously the goal. I didn't think England's centre-backs were really troubled at all. I, th- I think Italy just lacked uh, yeah, just lacked cohesion between the lines and weren't really getting the ball forward. So, yeah, it was interesting to hear afterwards in the interview, the target for them is just getting out of the World Cup group. I mean, I mm-hmm. thought maybe the target would be a little bit more lofty than that, but it's, it, you know, I guess after a disappointing Euros, their, uh, yeah, expectations are quite quite modest at the moment. We have had the the whole VAR debate before Charlotte and we know what the cost implication is to have that in women's football. But I wonder if goal line technology is just a bare minimum that should be there. This might be something that you want to explore in one of your articles going forward. But the Italy goal, was it a goal or not? I think when you're coming into international football, whatever tournament that may be, goal line technology surely is just the bare minimum that's needed. It was interesting hearing Serena Wiegmann's comments. She kind of dismissed it and said, you know, it is what it is. We move on. No point really arguing about it. But you do wonder with the Nations League coming in as of September, so we'll have fewer friendlies and then there's really something at stake and much more competitive. Surely you'd have to have goal line technology because the consequences would be huge. As you said, Lindsay, it does come down to priority of financing and cost spoken about VAR before in the WSL, it's not necessarily a priority considering where investment should go. But yeah, I think when things are at stake, then you have to have the bare minimum, as you say. I mean, VAR is like a stadium thing as well, isn't it? I mean, if the grounds aren't in the Premier League, I mean, hopefully going forward, these games would just be played at Premier League grounds and then it's a lot easier to implement. But I'm guessing they can't really justify the cost of installing, you know, VAR just for one game at Coventry or two games at Coventry, actually, if they're not going to be using it week in, week out. Yeah, very true. I mean, Vigman afterwards, I think there'll be a whole other campaign, Michael, about the the pitches and what stadia is used going forwards because she called it unacceptable and horrible, didn't she, playing there? So they've got used now to, to playing on the supreme pitches from the Euros in the summer. I wanted to speak as well about Lauren James because it feels like going into every tournament at the moment, we have a shining star. Now, that shining star at the Euros was Beth Mead. And in a twist of fate, it feels like that position could be the key role again going into the World Cup. Michael, your thoughts on Lauren James becoming this absolute superstar. It feels like everything's building to this crescendo of her being on top form for the summer. Yeah, she was great. Fantastic in the career game. Charlotte did a really good article about how she dominated that one. And even as a sub yesterday, obviously came in, uh, came on and, and created the winner. And yeah, I mean, as you say, Lindsay, she's a great star, but I mean, there's so many options there, even without Mead, who obviously was, you know, won the player of the tournament the last Euros. I mean, Chloe Kelly didn't start any games at that tournament and is now a, you know, a, a major option to start. Lauren Hemp is still um, is still getting opportunities down the left. Katie Robinson, I thought, looked really bright down the right yeah, yesterday. Yeah, and uh, and Jess Bark as well, who I know played in a central position, but when she plays wide is, is just another really good dribbler. So England have got great options in those positions. I think that of every area in the team, I think that is probably where competition for places is, uh, yeah, the fiercest. You may have noticed as well the wristbands that were being worn by all the Lionesses. It was in solidarity with the Canada players and ovarian cancer action pin badges as well for Beth Mead's late mother. They were on full show. USA are leading Canada and Brazil at the She Believes Cup, which is also happening right now. Uh, You can follow coverage of the Canada protests as well on The Athletic. Well, we want you to get involved with this match discussion, but we do have to halt it for ourselves here. But use the hashtag AthleticWFP to let us know your thoughts on the match. Uh, Maybe you've got some thoughts as well on Italy. Italian football journalist Lucia Parola certainly had some, and I caught up with her earlier. Lucia, thank you so much for joining us today. And off the back of the most recent Italy performance, what what has the fallout been like? What's the press been like? What have your own thoughts been about the performances of Italy? Hi, so first of all, thank you for having me. I think it's it's not an easy phase for the Azzurra, for the Italian women's team. 
um, the press as well as the supporters have been quite kind with the, the team, let's say kind, because they're going through really some tough times. And it was all shown in the two games of the Arnold Clark Cup. I think it was all the difficulties that are, they, they are going through were quite shown on the pitch. I think the, the girls can, can do better, actually. I know it's very hard, Lucia, to sum up concisely what the difficulties are. But for anyone who's not as familiar with the, the run-in and the story for the national Italian team, can you try and sum that up for us? Yeah, well, I think it all started with the, the 2019 World Cup when Italy was one of the, the, big, the biggest surprises in the tournament. And many supporters outside Italy fell in love with the, with the, the national team. So there was pretty much a spotlight on, on the team. And I think this is the first, one of the, the, the main reasons why this team is currently struggling with uh, having good results because I think they felt like the pressure of uh, being in the spotlight, they had to play to play even better than what they did in the previous tournament. So, for example, the last Europe Europeans World Cup, the, the European Cup was not as satisfying as the previous World Cup. And, of course, they, they felt the, the pressure. And even the, the coach, uh, Milena Bertolini, said that they, the, the, the players felt like they had to win this cup in order to, to satisfy, to, uh, to make everyone happy but it was kind of too much for the players. So this, for example, I think is one of the main reasons why. And there's all the, also the, the, let's call it the, the pitch stuff, which means uh, finding their own identity on, uh, in, in, on the pitch and among the team. It's not so, so easy for uh, such a, let's call it a young national team such as Italy is. And also they struggling with some generational transition, something like that. There's even less players from the, let's call it the, the group with the players with the, the, the best experience and the biggest experience internationally speaking. And some of them are currently leaving the, the national team. So the younger players are having some difficulties trying to replace them. And that's why I think it's it's a tough period of time. I think that's something that England can relate to, actually. So many of the lionesses that I spoke to after winning the Euro were feeling that pressure, that, that expectation to be at a certain level. And they've started, only a few of them, I'm thinking of Chloe Kelly, who I've interviewed recently, who, who feels like she's suddenly enjoying playing football again. But I imagine that happened for Italy. Like you say, at 2019, everyone suddenly took paid attention, thought that they were ones for the future. I just want to round off, Lucia, by asking, and, and one of our listeners, Raphael Eiberg, got in touch as well to ask about this. But in terms of Serie A over there and the football coverage from the women's side in Italy, where do people go for that? I find it difficult over here to find in-depth information about the Italian teams. And you're nodding along, so this is clearly a frustration. Yeah, yes, it is. It's it's kind of a big issue here in Italy because it's hard to to find and to follow the the women's games and to keep in touch with the, how the team is performing it's hard to yeah to be the, the the best supporter you feel like you can be okay so i want to, to support this team i want to believe this team uh, but some teams make it hard for the supporters so yeah it's a big deal here and there's the um, let's say the main account that uh, gives information about the the league is the FIGC which is F I G C which is the the federation in charge of women's football here in Italy and they currently give all the the information on their website and that's pretty much it because wow. otherwise it's just uh, the the sing the individual clubs so the the teams giving information about their own team and when they play or where you can see the match. But otherwise, 
it, there's pretty much a lack of uh, information. So yeah, that's not that that's something that needs to be improved in order to 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 make the situation better. And this can also improve the the situation regarding the the, the national team because the more the players are involved, also from the the media point of view, um, the more they they get to know what it, it's actually like to be uh, a professional footballer. So that can also help, I think, in the from the international point of view and from the national point of view also regarding Serie A. Oh, we can absolutely vouch for that, Lucia. We, we hear you. We've been there. I think we're enjoying a moment now where we're seeing women's football in England a lot more front and centre. We hope you get that in Italy as well, but keep campaigning for it. Thank you very much for your time. We, Thank you we, so much. We are delighted that you've been able to share some of that with us. Thank you. Italian football journalist Lucia Parola speaking to me from Italy. So England and Belgium top the Arnold Clark Cup table with the Lionesses leading on goal difference. They face off in a decider for the tournament. Uh, winner takes all on Wednesday. In other internationals, uh, teams are competing for the final three World Cup spots. And to see how the African nations have been faring, I caught up with African football journalist Alistair Howarth. Alistair Howarth is with me. I've spoken to Alistair before and he always wows me with his knowledge of football in Africa. It's it's unparalleled, Alistair. So um, I'm going to hand straight over to you when I say that there are three groups fighting for three playoff spots. Cameroon have made it to the Group A finals, but Senegal are out. First of all, can you tell us about Cameroon's 2-0 win over Thailand in the semi-finals? And I think this is one that you monitor closely. Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was a good game. I think Cameroon coming into it are coming off a very low ebb. Kind of, they were a team that would have expected themselves not to be in this position. Uh, I think they, you know, are the kind of preeminent second place team in African football over the last decade. But a really poor Afcon showing, which is the qualifier for the World Cup, um, put them in a position where they had to come through this qualifier, and they were up against Thailand. And yeah, I think Cameroon were the much better side. They created plenty of chances, restricted Thailand to, to quite a few. There was quite a big selection surprise in the team that Gabriele Ongweni, the captain of Cameroon, didn't start. She's out there, kind of one of their biggest players over the last kind of few years. And she came off the bench to score a late brace to, to send Cameroon through. But the game kind of wasn't without controversy either because Cameroon also saw their goalkeeper Ange Bau sent off for a kind of Schumacher-esque clattering of the Thai forward. She just came out the box kind of in the last couple of minutes. So it didn't mean much, but she kind of just jumped straight into the Thai uh, center forward. And so they oh, will God. be without her in the in the final um, game. Uh, but so it wasn't entirely without incident, but kind of it, it probably should have been a more straightforward victory. I think from a Cameroonian perspective, they should have scored earlier. They hit the bar through Ajara and Joya. But they've got the job done, but now it's kind of a much, much more difficult task against Portugal. And in the other side of this draw in the semi-final, which will pique England fans' interest as well, because the winner of this could be going into England's group. There was this 4-0 defeat for Senegal to Haiti in that Group B semi-final. And then the winner of the final now between Haiti and Chile are the ones that can end up in the group with England. So in terms of the timing of this game, you think about the Men's World Cup, it wasn't ideal for Senegal, was it? Yeah, I think it's it's a real shame and it's a reflection of kind of the preparation you put into these tournaments is what you get out. And, and Cameroon are the same, you know, neither Senegal or Cameroon have actually played a senior friendly since the Africa Cup of Nations in the summer, which is a huge, huge disappointment to see because particularly Senegal surprised at the, at the AFCON, you know, they got to the, to the round of 16 and then won their playoff uh, knockout tie. And, you know, they, they're a team that, you know, obviously have come from relatively nowhere. They I think it was only their second appearance at the AFCON. And they have one or two really, really exciting stars, really, really exciting young players. And it's a team that you would have thought that actually this could have been a brilliant opportunity. And, you know, the draw with Haiti and Chile kind of looked more favorable, in my opinion, than Cameroon's having to go through Thailand and Portugal. But, you know, it, that's that's the kind of the reality when they didn't get the preparation. You could see, you know, on another day, you know, they could have come away with a result, but all kind of four of the goals really were kind of 
defensive lapses that just were very apparent that it was a team that hadn't really played together that much um, and in the last six months. And so it was a bit of a shame that they weren't able to get it, get there because actually speaking with kind of some Cameroonian journalists ahead of the, the qualifications, we actually were probably more confident in Senegal. We said, you know, actually Senegal look like they have a better draw. They look like they're in better form in terms of the AFCON performance. But yeah, it's a real shame and they kind of have to kind of restart from here, I guess. Mm. And in terms of the finalists, I mean, whatever happens, practically, how much preparation time are they going to have for the World Cup? You you look at everyone else who's known they've been in the draw for so long. Do you think that it's going to be a real a real hindrance? Yeah, 100%. I think... I think the reality is for a lot of African teams uh, and and in clubs or countries from around the world is there is still a huge importance on things like sponsorship and money coming into the teams that really affects the way they can prepare. You know, a really good example is, you know, South Africa coming off the back of their AFCON. They suddenly could get friendlies against teams like Australia. You know, they played them here in London. And I don't think those kind of games happen unless you have, you know, the support from, from big sponsors that come in when you've got the guarantee of going to the World Cup, you know, same with Nigeria, the friendlies that they're playing compared to the other three countries, you know, they're playing in the US and in Mexico, and they're playing the US, Japan earlier last year, you know, they're playing Costa Rica, Colombia, big teams, whereas, you know, South Africa, Morocco, Zambia, the other four teams going are all playing, you know, no disrespect, North Macedonia or Uzbekistan. So it really, really does impact the kind of caliber of teams you were meant to play, you know, both Senegal and Cameroon were meant to play uh, friendlies prior to this. You know, they were meant to play a friendly against each other. I think Cameroon were meant to play in a friendly tournament in the Middle East. And both of those fell short in part because of the financial restrictions on them. And so even if you get through it, like you said, then there's less time to prepare for the World Cup. And I think particularly because it came alongside the Men's World Cup, where both Senegal and Cameroon were in the Men's World Cup. Both of them have had big kind of years on the men's side. And so kind of the women's team kind of got forgotten um, because of this this kind of tricky playoff at an awkward time of the year. And we've seen that reflected in the way that the two have actually performed, um, even though Cameroon still have a chance of making it. Alistair, thank you so much. So just a brief recap then. Those three spots up for grabs. Group A, Cameroon beat Thailand 2-0. They'll play Portugal in a final on Wednesday. They could join USA, Vietnam and Netherlands. Group B, who I mentioned, which is ending up in the England side of the draw. Senegal lost 4-0 to Haiti. Haiti will play Chile in their final on Wednesday. That could join England, Denmark and China. And Group C, Panama play Paraguay on Thursday and could end up joining France, Jamaica and Brazil. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. That was me speaking to African football journalist Alistair Howarth. Uh, We're having a break from club football right now, which gives us time as well to reflect on whether the league is everything we want it to be. In perfect harmony for this discussion, Emma Hayes was asked about the idea of a closed WSL. No promotion or relegation similar to what we see over in the United States. What do we think about this, guys? Is this something that you think would work for WSL? Or should we stick to the English pyramid and be traditionalists? Michael? Well, I took her quotes to mean not necessarily that she was proposing that or was in support of it, just saying that, you know, we should be open to any kind of ideas and we should be very open-minded about, you know, progress and how to attract investment. That was definitely what she was. It wasn't as if I am pro-closed leagues. It was like, let's look at all options when the question was asked. Context is everything, isn't it? How about from your point of view, Faye? You know, you've you've watched the league develop and change anyway. Would this be a step too far? Yeah, I just I just look at it as um, I, from looking at the history of the game, and even when we started the WSL and we moved it to mm. a summer league, thinking it wouldn't compete with the men's, and then obviously more recently it's moved back to a winter league, and trying to put the the brand in the terminology so that everyday football fan understands it in the same way as the men and then just moving it out of a system in our country into a different way of running it to an Americanized kind of it would you just wonder how then that would you know I think we tinkered with the get women's games too much sometimes and I know we should look for opportunities and definitely just because it's happens in the men's game doesn't mean we have to do it in the women's that you know can we take the best from you know number of different scenarios for etc but I just worry about the grassroots level. If you did close it off, what incentive does that give to other clubs that, you know, are trying to make their way or are going to invest? Because the women's game, yes, it's exploding, but 
it's you know it's high at the you know England level and WSL now it's getting there and we're starting to see big crowds but you know what about all those other clubs that you know want to keep going want to develop their grassroots want to you know gradually you know look at Southampton working the way up through the leagues trying to you know give that support and that growth and if they could never know they're never going to get in the you know that top league then yeah. what's the point kind of thing so I think it's yeah just should we not we should be doing it gradually and yes have ideas and I think that's obviously it sounds like her comments were that let's you know not be a closed off to that things. is exactly but, it. Um, just I think too much tinkering sometimes and we still need the game to grow we do still need to get to the level we want to get to in it um, Charlotte you have written about a potential women's super league and what that could do please expand I may sound defensive um, and I don't want to come across that way I'm I'm not pro-European Super League. I think the European Super League gets a lot of bad press and rightly so because of the political and negative connotations associated with the men's team and the huge backlash from fans uh, when it was launched in April 2021. So the article that I wrote was just looking at how would it affect the women's game because nobody seemed to address it. In April 2021, uh, there was a 27-word line saying, oh, in the future, we'll probably do the same for the women's game. And then the European Super League reared its head 10 days ago with new proposals laid out by A22, uh, the company leading it. And yet again, <laughs> there was just such threadbare detail for the women's game. It was one bullet point. And it just shows that a22 don't have the best interests of the women's game at all like it's completely um farcical that you know there was so little detail of how they would develop a european super league for the women's game and that's the irony is that they don't care about it and yet there are some people and top european clubs who are potentially infused by the idea of a European Super League. So you'd have the best teams in Europe coming to play uh, a league more regularly. So that means more competitive matches, more revenue, because you have the best teams involved in a, a better product. So legally, it could work, but it would have to stay open. That means you'd have to have promotion and relegation in compliance with uh, European competition law. Commercially, it could be really positive because you're going to create more money. It's proven that Christina Philippou, who I, I spoke to, a financial expert, said, you know, if women's leagues agree their own terms in terms of sponsorship and broadcast deal, then they're going to create more revenues rather than just as an add-on. So, oh, you have the men's Champions League rights and we'll chuck in the women's for free, for example. But could that damage the domestic league? So could those clubs who are getting more revenue and getting more cash to splash on players, they then go back to their domestic leagues and then the gap is even wider. Now, there are frustrations among some clubs, for example, in the Fra French, Italian, Spanish leagues, that the, the gap is so huge. Like We see PSG and Lyon dominate all the time. We see Barcelona dominate, Juventus, uh, Roma into Milan, AC Milan, in the WSL, it's much more competitive. So that's where the frustration is, is that these clubs are investing and yet domestically they're not getting the revenue that they would like. The issue then comes to that is, okay, well, aren't you going to create the gap even further? And that's where solidarity payments come in. So these clubs may play in this European Super League, but a portion of the money would have to be given back to those clubs not involved. So if you're creating more revenue, then do the clubs that are not involved get a larger solidarity payment than the Champions League at the moment? The issue comes again is that, you know, how much of the pie would those big clubs like to give away? So in 10 years' time, for the sustainability of the women's pyramid, Potentially, if you give a larger share to the clubs not involved over a long period of time, then that's going to make the game more even. But why would a club do that? <laughs> why would the top European clubs want to give away uh, the revenue that they're creating from their star players? So, yeah, I explored that. Go check it out on The Athletic if you're interested in 
what effect a European Super League may have on the women's game. The really interesting thing is, is that the conversation is happening. Uh, the conversation is happening uh, around the league at these clubs. And so it's a real wake-up call for UEFA, for the National Football Associations to say, hey, how do we want women's football to look? It doesn't have to follow the men's path. You say that, Charlotte, but I'm I'm interested to say that I picked up on the fact that you were talking about in these documents, it was a, a footnote. I mean, is there a danger, Michael, that the women's side could be used as a guinea pig? for what the men want to do. Yeah, that's an interesting question, actually. I hadn't considered that. Kind of, I mean, this is a completely different issue, but kind of the same thing happened in in cricket in this country, where they kind of formed a, a franchise system for the women's game a couple of years before they formed the 100, and maybe that was a bit of a guinea pig. My approach to this is, is probably a kind of Emma Hayes-esque, I think we should be open to anything. I, I do think there's an issue with inequality within the leagues. And when you look at Barcelona, I mean, they won 34 games out of 34 last season. I think they've won 17 out of 17 so far this season. These aren't really competitive divisions. And of course, Charlotte, you know, explores, in the article, explores the the issues that she's just outlined. But I think fundamentally, the point of a league is to group together sides of a similar ability. And when you have this kind of rampant inequality, I almost think sometimes there's an argument for just letting the big sides go off and compete in their in their kind of slightly different universe. And then at least you can have some kind of competitive league system because at the moment, no one in Spain has, you know, even 1% chance of winning the league each year, which just isn't a healthy situation. You have to look at short-term versus long-term. So the short-term is if you have all these best clubs playing together, it just torpedoes the domestic leagues. Like they would just be shredded because the competitiveness is lost. So that's where we have to look at, you know, short term versus long term here. Well, we do urge you to check out Charlotte's article that lays out in much more detail what's been going on. A Women's European Super League. What are your thoughts? Uh, Let us know. Use the hashtag AthleticWFP. This is the Athletic Women's Football Podcast with Lindsay Hooper. Coming up, as we mentioned, the Arnold Clark Cup winner will be decided on Wednesday as England face Belgium. Then at the weekend, it's the FA Cup fifth round. This season, the prize money increased tenfold and we wanted to see the impact of that decision. So we caught up with the chair of the lowest ranked side left in, Michelle Adams, MBE of Cardiff City Ladies. Michelle, thank you very much for joining us. I know you've even moved a few houses down so that you could get a better connection for us today. And we're very grateful for that. How's the Wi-Fi bearing up for you? It's doing okay, thank you. Although I think I would have been better staying at home, but still, never mind. (laughs) No, we we can hear you loud and clear. I want to get straight to the money, Michelle, which we don't often do that, do we? We beat around the bush a little bit, but let's talk figures straight away because Cardiff City were knocked out in the first round last year. Since then, we've seen this increase in prize money. You're through to the fifth round where you're going to face Lewis. So I wondered if you could spell out in monetary terms what that's meant for the club this time. Well, it's obviously made a massive difference to our season for this year and hopefully next as well. Basically, what we what we did is at the beginning of the season, we, we revamped because we were relegated last year. So we took a good hard look at ourselves. And um, part of our, our thing was to get to, I know it sounds silly, but to get to this round was a tick box and also mm-hmm. to do well in the league. So to be honest, never believing we would get this far. But there you go. It's amazing what can what can happen in a season. So. It's worked wonders for us. And breaking down those figures and, and the difference that it's made for you, in my notes, I've got that last year when you were knocked out in the first round proper, I think you got around £1,600 in total. So what would it be looking like, win or lose, in the fifth round? I'm trying to work out how much, is it something like 28000 so far, something like that? Okay. So that, that's a huge difference for you. And what, what does that money do for you, Michelle, at the club? Well, it helped us no end because prior to our run, we were 6,000 light to finish the season. We would have found that, obviously, during the year, but it means more sponsors and obviously the extra work. So as we were going along in, in the FA Cup run, we decided that, you know, once once the 6,000 was sorted for this year, we could have a couple of treats during the year for the girls and for the, the people around, you know, all the volunteers and so on. So we had a good Christmas. And then obviously the last round, we looked to to buy more kit, 
you know, I mean, you know, warmer jackets and that type of stuff. And then the rest of it, we've intentionally salted away for for next season. So it means that we haven't got the headache of worrying about our pre-season, worrying about the start of the year. It means we can concentrate more on on the field stuff. I'm sure that there's still more that you'd like to be done. It has obviously been very welcome from clubs, this 10 times increase, I think it's pretty much amounting to on the women's side. But the men's has gone up just equally, if not more. Um, <laughs> did you have a viewpoint on that? <laughs> well, it, it's football as it is at the moment, isn't it, really? Whatever standard you're playing, you know, it's, it's the men's is always going to be uh, higher ranked game and, and you know and, and rightly so I suppose in some ways I mean they're the people who draw the crowds in at the moment but having said that um, I hope it doesn't take another you know 50-60 years before the women's game can catch up financially off the pitch it needs a little bit more I think I imagine in years gone by that it's actually cost you money to enter the FA Cup so I think to turn that sort of corner is progress yeah it's the first time we've ever made a profit um, on wow. the Epic Cup or, or in anything, you know. In, in the past, we were one of the top 12 teams in the UK before the WSL1 came in. Um, and then we were basically relegated without kicking the ball because we were a Welsh club playing in England. So it cost us an absolute fortune. And although the game wasn't what it is now, you know, where, where the players are more professional, there were some professional, part-time professionals in the, in the league, people like Arsenal. And we were running against them week in, week out. So you can imagine what it costs in the past. It's, it's, it's an absolute fortune every season to run our club. Wow. As well as getting there and back, you've got the travel, the coaches themselves that you have to pay for, but the pitch cost as well. I don't think people think of that. So what sort of figure was it costing you? Well, let's put it this way. With, with a home game, normally, it would be around about the £450, £500 mark. Bearing in mind that our players are all amateurs and so are our our coaches and our, all our people around us were all volunteers. So we don't pay any of that. It's not paying a wage included in that. That's just referees, officials, um, the pitch uh, hire, the after match food for you know for the other team and so on and feeding our people as well. It's around about the five hundred pound mark. And now to be in that P word, profit margins, does does that mean that your approach to the FA Cup come future seasons is going to be different? Is it going to be your main source of income potentially as a club? I don't think we can look at it that way, much as we'd like to. <laughs> um, no, I don't think so, because I, I think as soon as you start worrying about the money side of the game on that, you know, this year we've been very fortunate. We've done, we've done well. I think this is about the, I don't know, the third or the fourth time we've ever reached this stage. In our history, we've we've gone on and won this and gone to the, the quarters once before. But then, obviously, there was no money involved in those days. So I think it's it's just, you know, something you've just got to think, well, what, what a fabulous addition to our season this year. And you were drawn away. So you faced Lewis, as I said earlier, in the fifth round. Were you wanting a home tie, ideally? The girls did. Um, the girls, well, the girls wanted to go somewhere like to Manchester City or somewhere like that. Obviously, mm -hmm. you know, it's um, you've got this far and um, we're the only amateur team left in it. So, you, you, you know, they're probably thinking to themselves, well, you know, if you're going to if you're going to go out with a flourish, right, and go, go up big. At home, we were, we were worried if we would draw somebody like Chelsea or Man City because, you know, we, we'd struggle with the logistics of getting them here. So, you know, if you're going to draw one of the big ones, it would have had to be in a way. Lewis, we were disappointed we didn't draw them at home, the fact that it was Lewis. Because we would we would have coped with that. Mm. So you know it was ifs and buts all along, really. But there you are. It is what it is. So, and for anyone who's not followed your cup run, who have been some of the shining stars in this team? Who should we be looking out for? Well, it's a it's a it's a very good squad actually. It's 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 coming on nicely. Obviously, we've got the the Welsh number one, Laura O'Sullivan, in in goal, who's a massive help to us. But she's been with us all her career, really. She just had a, one or two. Outings out in another team. And then we've got Corey Williams who's scoring for fun. We've just had one last now come back to us after maternity leave. So throughout the team, they've excelled in, 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 in the league and the cup this year. Our aim is to, to get promotion um, within the next 18 months from this league up to the tier three and then to be doing the same thing into the championship. So that is our, our ultimate aim. 
Is it for Wales? Yeah, it is. We're a Welsh club playing in England, but we've always played in England, so we don't know any different, really. Mm. And, you know, we've been there 47 years now, so it's, you know, it's we, we feel part of their family, even though sometimes they don't want, well, they don't think we are, <laughs> but we are. <laughs> I'm sure they do. I'm so sure we are. They do. <laughs> We wish you all the best in that tie against Lewis. It's going to pique our interest even more having spoken to you, Michelle. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much too. That was me speaking to Cardiff City Chair Michelle Adams, MBE. Uh, Listener Alex Bayliss asked us, should there be an FA Cup vase to give lower teams an opportunity to play a final at Wembley? Charlotte, that seems right up your street to explore. I'll add to the list. <laughs> I always give something for your list, don't I? I bet you don't want to come on this show anymore. My my workload is getting too big. No, it's just I don't want to disappoint you, Lindsay. It'll be, <laughs> you know, something coming on and get, you know, bash. She wanted to know about the number of caps. Still haven't done that. Oh, I know, I know. Um, FA Cup Vars, any takers? Michael, Faye? Again, as the game grows and develops, then this, if that becomes an opportunity, then great, because it gives them that Wembley day out, doesn't it? Even- even, you know, you might have a, a cup upset every now and then, but it's uh, it's likely then, you know, not, not ever going to get to the final. Um, it would be great. We get to a world where that, that is happening or that, that that is an option. So, again, if it's developing the game in this country, I would certainly be for it. Yeah, I think it's worth exploring. I mean, it's um, it depends on... Yeah, a few factors in terms of the the organisation and and making sure that it's going to be a big enough event. But yeah, those those competitions, the FA Trophy, the FA Vars, they work really well in the men's game. So uh, yeah, if it works in the women's game, that'd be great too. And Michael, whilst you're there, because I don't want to direct anything at Charlotte right now, I, I feel like I'll get a glare if I give another question that needs answering. But listener Adam Bateman did get in touch. He did point out, <laughs> rightly so, that Chelsea versus Arsenal will be shown on TV. And that is the only fixture. Do we need more of the FA Cup matches on TV, in your opinion, Michael? Yeah, I'd like to see. I, I do think the FA Cup kind of suits, yeah, terrestrial TV and it being kind of quite a big event. And if, yeah, if those matches can be on the, the biggest platforms, I think that's that's the way to go. I think people do get invested in the FA Cup in a, in a wider way than league action. I can only speak from experience, but my mum would never watch a Premier League game or probably not a, a WSL game. But if you mention FA Cup to her, she'll watch it. So yeah, I do think the FA Cup can be a bit more um yeah, a bit more open. And I, I think the key thing is just making sure they're on the big platforms. I mean sometimes you hear that these games are going to be on BBC and it's tucked away on the red button or the iPlayer or whatever. I think mm. yeah, the, the key thing is just making sure people, you know, almost accidentally come across it. And I think tends to be the way these days if people watch women's football having not previously known much about it they genuinely are quite impressed and and get into it so yeah more tv the better well that is all we have time for on this week's athletic women's football podcast thank you very much for listening and thank you to faye michael and charlotte as well thank you thanks Lindsay. thank you Thanks as well to producer Sophie. Uh, Keep in touch with us on socials using the hashtag AthleticWFP and you can tag in at The Athletic FC and at Offside Rule Pod as well. We'd love your reaction to some of those FA Cup matches. Any issues you want to get off your chest, direct them at us. See you next time. The Athletic.